Good morning. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Volume okay? Uh, I'm in my basement at my house in Portland. There's a light right above my head, and I can see this shining off my bulb. <laughs> it's like I feel like I'm in one of those Renaissance paintings, you know, where they have that halo up here. So uh, maybe I'll put this on. Uh, <laughs> I like the hat. We like this shot. Uh, the topic of this talk is Wei Nung, the sixth ancestor of uh, in our Zen lineage. I was introduced to Wei Nung by my Dharma brother, Eric Arbiter, about 25 years ago when he told this story. The monk Yin Zong expounded on the Buddhist sutras. One day during his lecture, a storm came up. Seeing a banner waving in the wind, he asked his audience, is the wind moving or is the flag moving? Someone said, the wind is moving. Someone else said, the flag is moving. The two people held fast to their viewpoints and asked Yin Zong to say who was right. But Yin Zong had no way to decide, so he asked Wei Nung, who was standing nearby, to resolve the issue. Wei Nung said, neither the wind nor the flag is moving. Yin Zong said, then what is it that is moving? Wei Nung said, your mind is moving. For several years before the Houston Zen community had its own center, Eric hosted a weekday morning sitting group in an upstairs room at his house in the Heights. Though others came and went and some stayed, the original core of the group consisted of Eric, Kathy Crouch, Dave Stevens, rest in peace, and me. I often thought of this teaching as I looked out the window, observing the wind blowing through the trees. What is it that is moving? Your mind is moving. What does that mean in terms of the nature of reality? And then my mind kept moving, theoretically in the direction of non-discursive thought. <laughs> Every morning at precisely the same time, Eric's next door neighbor would come out onto her back porch and smoke a cigarette. Had she ever looked up, she might have wondered about the motionless, disembodied head looking down from the window up above. <laughs> but as far as I know, she never did. <laughs> I eventually learned more about Wei Nung, the illiterate woodchopper who became the sixth ancestor in the Chinese Zen or Chan lineage. His story always resonated with me. How with no formal training and assigned to workman's duty, he bested the monastery's star student in Dharma combat that took the form of a poetry contest. But it was not until fairly recently that I read any of his actual teachings. A few years ago, I was walking down the street in my neighborhood in Portland when I passed a bookstore called Annie Bloom's. They had a discount table out on the sidewalk, and I saw this book, The Sutra of Wei Nung. Grand Master of Zen. While I do not subscribe to the optimistic doctrine that things happen for a reason, I thought I really should buy this book. When I went inside, I asked the clerk, do you know who this is? And uh, 
as if I had just discovered some lost literary masterpiece mixed in with their other discards. Uh, I think he thought I might be a little crazy, but uh, books like this really don't belong in the discount bin. <laughs> All of the five schools of Chinese Zen trace their ancestry back through Wei Nung, and he is the only Chinese Zen master whose essential teaching is labeled a sutra, a title almost exclusively reserved for the discourses of Shakyamuni Buddha. In preparing this talk, I relied on three primary sources. This book, translated by Thomas Cleary and published in 1998, Andy Ferguson's Zen's Chinese Heritage, which traces the history of Chinese Zen through 25 generations, over 700 years, beginning with Bodhidharma's arrival from India up through the 13th century, when the story as it relates to our lineage migrates to Japan. The third book is this, The Platform Sutra, The Zen Teaching of Wei Nung, translated by Red Pine with extensive commentary and recommended to me by Kokio Henkel, whose wise counsel I hope I can do, do justice to. I think this is probably the definitive study of Wei Nung's Platform Sutra, so named because he was supposedly sitting on a platform when he delivered it to an audience of 10,000 monks, nuns, and laypeople, plus 30 important government officials and scholars. But because I am more familiar with Cleary's translation, I will be using examples from both. There are also two different versions of the original sutra dating back to the century after Wei Nung died. By the way, Cleary and Pine are among the most respected American translators of Chinese religious and literary texts. Cleary died in, in 2021. Pine, who will turn 80 this year, lives in the state of Washington. As Wei Nung tells it in the Platform Sutra, his father, a former government official who had been banished to Southern China, died when he was quite young. He supported himself and his mother by selling firewood in the marketplace. One day, after he delivered a load of firewood to a shopkeeper, he overheard a customer in the store reciting the Diamond Sutra. As soon as I heard the words, my mind felt clearer and awake, he wrote, or he says. He asked the man what the scripture was and where he had gotten it. The man said he had gone to the Eastern Meditation Monastery to pay his respects to Hung Jin, the fifth grand master of Chan Buddhism, who told his students that by memorizing the Diamond Sutra, they would see their true natures and immediately become Buddhists. As soon as I heard this, I felt drawn by something from a past life, he says. He got his mother settled and departed for the mountain monastery where Hung Jin had more than a thousand students. Upon his arrival, he introduced himself to the master and told him he had come for one reason, to become a Buddha. The Grand Master insulted him, calling him an aborigine from the South, to which Wei Nung responded, people may be Southerners or Northerners. My social status is not the same as yours, but what difference is there in our Buddha nature? My own mind always produces wisdom. Not being alienated from one's essential nature is itself a field of blessings. What work would you have me do? The master replied, 
Don't say any more. Go work in the mill. For eight months, Wei Nung peddled a millstone. One day, the fifth patriarch called his disciples together and suggested it was time for them to get serious about the matter of birth and death. He instructed each of them to compose a verse demonstrating their understanding of essential nature with the promise that whoever composed the best verse would be appointed his successor. Only one, the precept instructor, Shen Zhu, reluctantly accepted the challenge. After agonizing about it for four days, he secretly posted a verse in the hallway outside the auditorium in the middle of the night. Cleary translates it as, the body is the tree of enlightenment. The mind is like a clear mirror stand. Polish it diligently, time and again, not letting it gather dust. Pine translates it this way. The body is like a Bodhi tree. The mind is like a standing mirror. Always try to keep it clean. Don't let it gather dust. When the master saw the verse the next morning, he decided to leave it on the wall and instructed his disciples to recite it to help them cultivate the Dharma. But when he met with Shen Zhu and asked if he was the author, he told him, This gatha of yours shows your understanding has only reached the threshold and has not yet entered inside. If ordinary people use your gatha in their practice, they won't regress. But someone with such an understanding who seeks perfect enlightenment will never realize it. If you want to enter the door, you have to see your nature. Go back and think about this for a few days and write me another gatha. If you're able to enter the door and see your nature, I will give you the robe and the dharma. Shinzu left, but after several days, he still hadn't written anything. Soon after, Wainung overheard a novice monk chanting the gatha and asked what it was. After the monk told him, along with the usual insults directed as his, at his lowly status, <coughs> Wainung asked to be taken to the hall and shown the poem on the wall. According to Pine's translation, he then composed two verses in response. Bodhi doesn't have any trees. This mirror doesn't have a stand. Our Buddha nature is forever pure. Where do you get this dust? Then I composed another one. The mind is the Bodhi tree. The body is the mirror's stand. The mirror itself is so clean, dust has no place to land. According, uh, he asked someone to write them on the wall for him, then went back to the mill room. When the grandmaster saw the verses, he said, this is still not the perception of essence, and erased them with his shoe. But later that night, he called Wainung to his room and transmitted to him the direct teaching and the robe passed down from Bodhidharma, 
and appointed him the sixth patriarch. He then said, if you stay here, someone will harm you. You must leave at once. Wainung headed south, pursued by those who wanted the robe back. Only one caught up with him, who asked to receive the Dharma, not the robe, and then told the other pursuers that he had not found him. According to Cleary's version, Wainung hid out with a group of hunters for 15 years before he began his formal teaching, beginning with his comment on the wind, the flag, and the mind. After this, he was recognized as a great teacher and established the East Mountain School. His principal disciples went on to found the five major schools of Chinese Zen, two of which, Soto and Rinzai, live on today by way of their adoption by Japanese Buddhists. Meanwhile, however, Shen Zhu, the fifth ancestor's former head student, and his followers established what became known as the Northern School of Zen in competition with Weinung's Southern School. The doctrinal differences centered around gradual understanding versus immediate understanding, polishing the mirror versus there is no mirror. Supposedly, the teachers regarded each other with respect, but their followers could be vehement in opposition to each other. For a time, the Northern School was predominant, but it became a victim of political upheaval in the Northern provinces and the Southern School prevailed even as the doctrines evolved and overlapped and merged with each other. It should be noted that Andy Ferguson, who by the way was a guest at the Houston Zen Center back about 15 years ago, I think, which is when I bought this book, is skeptical about the historical accuracy of any of this. He writes that some modern Chinese scholars regard the Platform Sutra as a fabricated document, invented later by Wei Neng's uh, doctrinal descendants to defend their spiritual legitimacy from the attacks of the Northern School. The Platform Sutra asserts that there is no fundamental difference between gradual and sudden as it pertains to enlightenment. But the text also includes multiple passages in which Wei Neng explains that the teaching of gradual enlightenment is more useful to those of lesser ability, and sudden or direct enlightenment is the province of those with greater ability. Could this be a matter of historical revisionism? But as Ferguson acknowledges, as with the legend of Bodhidharma, what matters is not so much the literal historical truth of the story, but what the mythology, if that's what it is, can teach us now. So what did Weinung teach? While I don't pretend to understand it in full, or perhaps at all, for the most part, it seems to me that his teaching is in line with the body of Zen wisdom and practice passed down from Bodhidharma through Dogen to our present time. He talks about the importance of taking refuge and of repentance using the same chants we still do. But his teaching is distinguished by his insistence to the point of arrogance on answering any instances of relativist thinking with absolute mind. In the Platform Sutra, he talks about what he calls one practice samadhi. One practice samadhi means at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, 
always practicing with a straightforward mind. The Vimlakirti Sutra says, a straightforward mind is the place of enlightenment, and a straightforward mind is the pure land. Don't practice hypocrisy with your mind while you talk about being straightforward with your mouth. If you speak about one practice samadhi with your mouth, but you don't practice with a straightforward mind, you're no disciple of the Buddha. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any dharma. This is what is meant by one practice samadhi. Deluded people who cling to the external attributes of a dharma get hold of one practice samadhi and just say that sitting motionlessness, motionlessness, motionless, eliminating delusions and not thinking thoughts are one practice samadhi. But if that were true, a dharma like that would be the same as lifelessness and would constitute an obstruction of the way instead. The way has to flow freely. Why block it up? The way flows freely when the mind doesn't dwell on any dharma. Once it dwells on something, it becomes bound. If sitting motionlessness, motionless were right, Vimlakirti would, wouldn't have criticized Shariputra for meditating in the forest. Good friends, I know there are people who tell others to devote themselves to sitting and contemplating their minds or purity and not to move or think. Deluded people are unaware, so they turn things upside down with their attachments. There are hundreds of such people who teach the way like this, but they are, you should know, greatly mistaken. And then Red Pine, his commentary. When Wei Nung told his audience to purify their minds, his teaching was over. The rest of his sermon was meant to prevent people from misunderstanding such a simple teaching. Normally, this is the first step in meditation practice, purifying our minds. But he tells us to stop right there. He doesn't instruct us any further in meditation, because to do so would be to differentiate meditation from this pure mind of ours. As long as our minds are pure, it doesn't matter if we're sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. A pure mind is one practice samadhi. And all that matters in the practice of one practice samadhi is a pure, straightforward mind. This is meditation, and this is wisdom. Meditation and wisdom are only separate for those who are deluded. All that matters is a straightforward, pure mind. Wei Nung's teaching doesn't go beyond this. As long as we remain straightforward in our thoughts, words, and deeds, the rest will happen of its own accord. The rest being the realization of our Buddha nature. This emphasis on purifying the mind to the exclusion of other forms of ritual worship, including the physical ritual of Zazen, reminds me of the writings of Alan Watts, or more recently, Eckhart Tolle, where the idea seems to be that if we can just once and for all get it straight in our heads what the true nature of reality is, we are home free. He amends the refuges to clarify that the concepts of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are mental concepts not something that can be found outside of our minds. Sounds great, right? Easy breezy. 
except it does not work, at least in my case. We have this thing called habit energy, or call it karma, that must be acknowledged and addressed. In our Soto school, the practice for doing that is called Zazen. Remember, Wei Nung was living at the, when he was living at the monastery, Wei Nung was not allowed in the meditation hall. He worked in the mill. His teaching does not recognize the distinction between meditation and wisdom. He often criticized the teachings of his contemporaries as reflecting a dualistic, incomplete understanding. A traditional Buddhist explanation might attribute Wei Nung's superior ability to the result of karma from past lives. Though as Pine points out, in Zen, karma is not understood to pass on directly through one individual life to another in the same soul. Let's go back to those poems for a minute. Here is Shen, Shen Zhu's verse. The body is the tree of enlightenment. The mind is like a clearer mirror stand. Polish it, polish it diligently, time and again, not letting it gather dust. Though Pine calls it doggerel, this is a helpful teaching, as the fifth patriarch acknowledged when he told his monks to memorize it. This is actually the way most of us practice, as Kokyo observed to me, or maybe the way all of us, other than Buddhas, practice using our incomplete awakening to work through our delusion. And this was probably true in Wei Nung's time as well, even among monks devoted to a lifetime of practice. Speaking from my own experience, when I first read about the Buddhist, Buddhist concept of spiritual liberation from suffering, I wanted the whole enchilada. Never mind cultivating calm and insight, or receiving precepts, or sangha practice. Once I am enlightened, I figure, I figured the rest of that will come naturally. <laughs> now, after 50 years of study and more than 25 years of formal practice, perhaps I have gone too far in the other direction. I no longer expect any sudden spiritual breakthroughs, though I remain open to gradual progress. I am not seeking complete and perfect enlightenment. I just want to be the best person I can be in this lifetime. And this practice is the best way I know of, at least for me, to do that. So consider me a person of lesser ability. <laughs> Wei Nung's story still resonates with me deeply, especially when seen in the context of Western lay practice. Some person could come through these doors with little or no Zen training and demonstrate superior understanding to those of us who have been here for years. The Zen mind, beginner's mind. The story also undercuts, or at least provides a persuasive undertow to the idea of hierarchy. This is possibly a manifestation of the influence of Chinese Taoism on Mahayana Buddhism, though it's also the dhyana teaching of Bodhidharma, the first ancestor. Vast emptiness, nothing holy, he told the Chinese emperor who was seeking praise for his collection of beautiful statues of the Buddha. And when asked, who is this confronting me? He answered, I don't know, and walked away. Zen has an anarchistic streak that I immediately connected with as a child of the 60s counterculture. 
The fact that Wei Neng is a central figure in Chinese Buddhism, arguably the central figure in Chinese Buddhism, is a testament to the awareness handed down through the direct transmission for 15 centuries that religious hierarchy, while necessary and beneficial to maintaining the tradition, is also dangerous. The 60-year experiment of Buddhism in the West has plenty of examples to support this. When I first started planning this talk, I was reading Cleary's book in bed. My wife, Lori, asked me what I was reading. I told her the tale of the illiterate woodchopper who became the sixth ancestor. She thought about it for a minute or so and said, chopping wood is harder than people think. <laughs> there you go. Maybe we, write, maybe we should write that on the wall. <laughs> Forget all the philosophical pontification. Stop wood, carry water. The mirror itself is so clean, dust has no place to land. Happy New Year.